people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener Joey Watson here on podcast, streaming online and live on your radio. This show is Out of the Box every Thursday. If you're playing along for the first time, I get to sit down with one guest, roll through the stories from their life and the records behind them. Today, I am speaking to you through 16-year-old airwaves. That's right, this microphone, this studio, the FBI Radio, is celebrating its sweet 16th today. So out of the box, we've got a special episode to talk about this station, about forward-thinking music. I'm joined by Stu Buchanan, who was here at birth. Yes, Stu was one of the many midwives or mid-husbands that carried this beloved station into existence. And... While we'll certainly be rolling through the birth story of this beautiful radio machine, Stu's had a pretty impressive life of his own. It's one that's been dedicated to the weird and wonderful future and sound of music. In the early 2000s, he was at the frontier, carving out the relationship between music and the internet at inception. Once the general manager of FBI Radio, soon to be the head of digital programming at that building, the Sydney Opera House. And today with me on this show, Stu, a warm welcome to Out of the Box and back to the FBI Radio studio for you. Well, it's very exciting, actually, because the studio that we're sitting in right now was uh, was where FBI first broadcast from. So there's a couple of different studios at FBI. Um, But the one we're sitting in right now was where we first broadcast on. So at 12 o'clock on the 29th of August, 2003 um, in fact the microphone you're sitting at right now was the, was turned on for the first time this was the one if I told you in 2003 so that 16 years later that same microphone that same studio would be still rolling out now with a listenership of over half a million mm. probable um, well, I mean, one of the things I think that characterized FBI back in 2003 was just this phrase that we always used, which was that we always punched above our weight. You know, like we knew we were this kind of like startup radio station that had no money. You know, that, that old phrase of kind of existed in this smell of an oily rag was true for so many years. So, yeah, we wanted to be the biggest thing, you know, in Sydney. That was the ambition. Um, but, you know, we had no idea how to get there, no idea if that would ever come true. So I think if, if I was looking back, you know, sort of with hindsight it's brilliant that that's happened um and in some respects it's not surprising because that's kind of where the ambition always was you know to be as good as it is now same same much to say same in that regard has the character changed otherwise no no i i, I don't think so i think you know it's uh, i've i've had a lot of for i've been very fortunate to kind of stay weave in and out of fbi over the years you know and every time i sort of come back around it's a whole different cast of people but you know they look as fresh-faced as i was back then um you know and have the same kind of uh, i guess the same kind of attitude and kind of ideas and you know the same kind of philosophy i suppose um so even though it's a, you know it's a whole sort of new crew i think yeah, the attitudes and the ideas remain the same so on familiar ground and and speaking of familiar ground let's go back to scotland Hmm. What, what was life like for you in scotland as a kid I think I had one of those, um, you know, kind of disappointingly vanilla upbringings. Um, you know, I lived in the burbs and there wasn't a lot to do. So we kind of made our own entertainment, if you like. Um, my sort of way of uh, escapism was really into uh, a lot of kind of, uh, certainly as a younger kid, into uh, things like science fiction. I was a big sci-fi nerd as a kid, um, which then took me into um, lots of other kind of strange 
areas, I suppose, particularly around electronic music, because obviously when you watch a lot of sci-fi uh, in the 80s, a lot of those kind of soundtracks and so on were all kind of electronic based and people kind of, you know, trying out a whole lots of kind of, you know, new techniques and new synths and so on. Like if you remember, like, you know, like the Fairlight Sampler, which is, you know, the, the kind of big breakthrough sampler of his day, it was like 1984 or something. So people were kind of got this gear and this technology and no idea how to use it. And so we're trying out all these weird and wonderful things. And things like television uh, soundtracks and film soundtracks were where they would kind of mm. experiment. So I got into music, I guess, through that kind of uh, stuff, even though, you know, I, I listened to a lot of pop music. And then my sister kind of went to college and she got into a lot more weird music. And I kind of followed that route with her, too. But a lot of my kind of nascent music listening was more around those kind of electronic soundtrack stuff. So straight away, I was, I was sort of following that kind of scene, which then led me into all sorts of, you know, weird and wonderful films and books and comics as a teenager. So even though life around me where I was living was pretty, you know, pretty vanilla, pretty boring, um, that was my kind of escapism. I'm really interested in that because there's something to be said for the music that you're listening to at an impressionable age, informing the music taste that you then carry through with you for life. I know for me it was the 60s, which, you know, 60s music and genres which were heavily influenced through my father and mm. um, your friends that listened to hip hop kind of grew up on hip hop. Um, and uh, for people that are obsessed and there is a large and growing subculture for people obsessed with genres that don't actually exist yet I mean you say you brought yours from the television then mm. and not from music at all but mm. from music through the television mm. well there was a lot of artists though who kind of I guess also responded to that you know so a lot of the artists that, that I listened to uh, as a kid were kind of you know futuristic for want of a better word you know um, there was a whole kind of seam of music um, they sort of called themselves the new romantics in the UK that were all kind of using synths for the first time particularly in pop music now Kraftwerk had kind of done it in the 70s but this was the first time it was really suddenly pervasive and some of that was really cheesy pop but others were more kind of uh, coming out of punk and post-punk and then started using synths so kind of bands like the Human League that became very pop starred very kind of post-punk uh, electronics so I think I wasn't kind of alone and, you know, even though I wasn't making music, there were a lot of people who were similarly looking to film and TV for inspiration, but then translated that into more kind of traditional music, if you like. What about the radio? Were you listening to the radio? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, these, without revealing too how, how old I am, um, you know, uh, my upbringing through music, of course, predated the internet. Um, and uh, even, you know, living in the burbs, we didn't get access to things like music press either. So radio really was the only way um, that you could uh, you could discover new music. Um, and there were a partic- couple of particular shows uh, on uh, on Radio 1, the BBC Radio 1. Uh, their kind of daytime programming was pretty, you know, was pretty middle of the road. Um, but, uh, you know, they would have specialists in the evening. John Peel was, was obviously very well known. I didn't really listen to a lot of Peel. Um, I didn't usually listen during the week. It was more at the weekends. Um, and so there was always a couple of shows on the weekend where they would just play, you know, stuff that I'd never heard of. You know, artists completely out of the blue. Um, you know, and uh, back in those days, we'd be like, you know, literally taping the radio with cassettes, um, so that those were the songs that you'd play back and listen to. You know, that that was how, that was your music collection, I suppose. How long would it be before you started to carve a kind of place for yourself in the music industry as a as a young Scot? Um, well, probably. Uh, I went to uni and uh, at Glasgow, so I went to the University of Glasgow, and it was kind of there that I that I first had the opportunity to actually like put on shows, you know. So I, I worked, I worked to the student union, um, putting on a lot of shows, uh, putting on a lot of club nights and so on. So that was, I guess, that was my kind of 
introduction into it um and as a result we'd kind of work with a lot of bands and promoters and so on were you already pushing the boundaries with music or were these more run-of-the-mill a little bit i mean you know the university we had this weird setup in glasgow where we had two student unions one was quite conservative and one was very left field and you know obviously went to the one that was a lot more left field so so we're certainly uh, i guess you know if fbi was around in glasgow at that time i think it would be quite synonymous in terms of the type of bands that we played so the kind of bands that were probably playing at the time i was there be bands like the pixies or nirvana or stuff like that you know so it was sort of you know that that kind of style i suppose okay let's go to some music now segue what should we play for your musical introduction well we're talking about radio there and this was a song that i heard on the radio uh for the first time uh way back in the day and i remember i'd never heard of this band never heard of this singer and it just came completely out of left field it was like nothing i'd ever heard before um and the kind of songs that i've sort of chosen today are songs that change the way that i think about music um and this was definitely one of them from the sugar cubes
the sugar cubes there. That was very early Bjork. It blew the mind of Stu Buchanan. He was one of the founding parents of FBI Radio. He's now the digital content lead at that building, the Opera House. And lucky for me, my guest on this FBI Radio 16th birthday edition of Out of the Box. Stu, you move to London in the late 90s. What was going on there? It was a brilliant time to be there in London because by that point you'd sort of moved through, I guess, the kind of, you know, birth of dance music culture. So it kind of kind of... Uh, not so much quietened down, but it kind of settled into a bit of a rhythm. So by the time I got there, there was a lot of well-established clubs playing a lot of great music, um, but it also allowed a lot of other genres to to break through. You know, as a kind of, if you like, the kind of second or third wave um, of the kind of dance music culture at that time. Um, so I was really fortunate. I kind of landed there at the right time. You know, um, for for anybody who loves music, London is you know obviously one of the kind of epicenters of the world, and you know you can really kind of go in any direction you want. I was was kind of really hungry though to kind of discover stuff that um, I'd never heard before you know I was sort of going into uh, you know arriving in a city where there was a lot of subcultures that I'd you know just didn't exist in Scotland you know the diversity in London was you know significantly uh, you know significantly more diverse than it, than it was in Scotland. So I was exposed to a whole lot of other sounds uh, and ideas and genres, um, which was fantastic, you know. We're also at this stage about to be hit with the uh, with the World Wide Web. Mm. Um, and everything that that brought with it. Mm. What did that mean for the sort of work that you were getting into? Well, I mean, I sort of, um, sort of, I guess I've identified really early on what the potential of the web might be for the kind of stuff that I was into, right? So uh, as we're kind of talking about, I was into kind of, you know, I guess artists that exist on the kind of in the margin, stuff on the left field. A lot of the the literature that I read, you know, growing up or or certainly in my early 20s was kind of zine culture and so on. So I understood that there are kind of a lot of artists and musicians who are operating in these kind of areas. Then the internet comes along, you think, well, actually, here's an opportunity to, you know, for those artists to get a bigger audience, you know, to to spread their ideas, you know, um, around the world. Because a lot of the time, particularly if, like if you're publishing zines and so on, your your distribution, your available audience is like your hometown or even your home suburb or whatever. You know, there wasn't a great opportunity to spread your ideas beyond that. So the internet was a was you know I saw straight away what that opportunity might be. So I used whatever opportunity I could to kind of you know um, learn early on. You know, so even in Scotland, I kind of. I was working at the Edinburgh Fringe, right, one of the you know the biggest arts festival in the world, and we had the kind of capacity to um, develop a website there in the kind of uh, mid late nineties, which was one of the first arts websites in Scotland. So I kind of cut my teeth through that kind of stuff, um, recognizing that actually one day I'd be able to kind of get you know get my hands on it myself and, and and use it. I used some time in London as well to kind of learn more about publishing and and worked for a uh, worked for a music paper there for a little while. Um, we dabbled around making our own websites and so on. Um, and it wasn't really until uh, kind of 2000 where I sort of, ha- I guess, had the kind of skills and the opportunity to work directly with artists to start building websites. And what were you doing with artists? Well, the first artist that we really worked with, I guess, of, of any renown was a, a UK band called Goldfrap. Um, we sort of came to that through a friend of a friend um, who, you know, they heard that Goldfrap needed a new website. We were building websites uh, over to over to the side. Um, when you say Goldfrap needed a new website, was there already the sense that this was something that people needed to get onto? Or are well, these just bands that are as forward-thinking as you are? No, I think um, what, what we had back then was, you know, 
most bands had websites, but they were really straightforward. You know, there were just a couple of few information pages and there was nothing really kind of special about them. Um, Gofrap wanted something that was um, a lot more interesting and kind of, you know, interactive and immersive and so on. The kind of thing that actually now is kind of taken for granted, but back then nobody was really doing. So we, we built a website for a theatre in the, in, the, in the UK called the, uh, called the Royal Court Theatre where I was working. And we did this kind of very basic kind of uh, little flash immersive kind of environment, not too, um, you know, not too kind of cutting edge, but fun. Um, and so the person who commissioned us had seen this and said, look, we want to do a kind of something really special for Goldfrap that hasn't been done before. Um, and of course, when someone says that to you, that's something that you know, you want to have a go at. And what was the answer? Yeah. What was the thing that hadn't been done before? <laughs> well, we actually worked with a couple of artists, a couple of visual artists, um, and sort of, you know, who who didn't really have any concept of what the internet was and tried. And so they were doing, if you like, kind of al- album covers for the band. So it was kind of like, how do we take some of the artwork that exists and translate that into, into a digital platform? You know, so you might have kind of pictures or landscapes or so on that are derived from the album artwork, but, you know, they would, they would kind of have some degree of interactivity on it, you know. Um, so you they, their idea was they wanted to create essentially a world that you could walk through and move through, which, you know, in kind of 2001 or whenever it was, you know, that's not really possible uh, with the technology that was available, but we, we did our damn best to do something pretty special. Things move fast. Mm-hmm. Um, did any mainstream artists come to you? We did. Um, no, I should say when I say we, I'm, to, I'm actually talking about my wife and I. My wife and I met each other in, in London and we were both working for uh, uh, the same agency. Um, so this is a love story as it well. It is actually a love story, story because it's why, I'm, <laughs> it's why I'm here in Australia as well. Um, I met why my wife in London. She was really, in, she was working uh, as a digital designer. In fact, she was the one who was, um, you know, taught herself Flash, uh, which at the time was the kind of, you know, was, was the kind of cutting edge of what websites were doing. Um, so she was doing, you know, a lot of that uh, amazing work. Um, we worked on the GoFrat website together, the two of us. Um, we set up our own little business um, and then she said, hey, I want to come back to Sydney and, you know, because she was from Sydney, uh, I want to come back home. So I followed her and uh, I've been here ever since. Um, but one day, uh, actually, when we got to Australia, we uh, I got a call. Um, I, I got an email from someone said, hey, I'm uh, uh, I represent a, a band in the US. We've seen the GoFrat website and we'd love to do something similar. I'm like, sure. She said, can you give me a call? So I phoned this woman. You know, so I'm now in Marrickville in a little two bedroom apartment and I call this woman and she's in a, in a cab in Manhattan. And, you know, this kind of like crackly line saying, hey, Stuart, you know, we want this band. This band wants to do this website. Terrible US accent. Apologies. Um, and then, so we had this conversation and, you know, I had to say, look, I have to ask the question, who's the band? She goes, oh, yeah, it's the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> like, shit. Um, you know, so we ended up doing their website, myself and my wife and a, cu- a couple of our friends out of a bedroom, essentially, in Marrickville. Um, and um, unfortunately, Anthony Kiedis called our little apartment in Maryville. We were out at the time and he left a message on our answer machine, which my wife would replay time and time again. You know, it was like, hey, Stuart and Robin, it's Anthony, uh, which was just insane. Um, you know, and we emailed and eventually sort of built this website for them. But um, I found it on the, you know, the Wayback Machine on the archive of the Internet recently and remembered that um, the, the concept for this, again, sort of built in Flash, the concept for this was this sort of giant uh, sort of, you know, long, long landscape um, that was a kind of like decaying um, outdoor movie theater. And we had to populate it with lots and lots of people. And they said, we want you to shoot characters and populate this with characters. I'm like, well, I don't know. Um, so we actually called all our friends and we, we met in the back alley of, uh, of our uh, little apartment in Marrickville and did this photo shoot with everybody just said, wear whatever you want and kind of, you know, go, go as kind of crazy as you want to. 
and now sort of looking at that this amazing kind of Americana red hot chili peppers website and it's just full of our friends from Marrickville populating the website which is quite because it's quite nice to look back on all right, Stu, what's this Osmani sounds track that you're going to play for us now? This is just, a, I guess, some really a nice kind of representative sound of, of a, again, something that really changed the way I think about music. And this was in London. Um, and, you know, I, would, I love going out clubbing in London. And, and uh, one of my favorite clubs was called Anu was called Anoka, which was run by a guy called Talvin Singh. And that was really about kind of marrying uh, a, a lot of the kind of uh, Indian and Asian subcultures that were kind of prevalent in London at the time and bringing uh, a lot of uh, those kind of genres and styles to bear, particularly on jungle and drum and bass, um, which I was mad into at the time. So um, this is a great example of that kind of marriage um, of kind of uh, different sounds and cultures that, that I guess over the rest of my life uh, I really tapped into.
come back to us listener sounds from the future from another dimension but really from 1997 and the record collection of Stu Buchanan he was one of the first general managers and the broadcasters at FBI radio and today in recognition of FBI's 16th year he's here with me for this show and podcast out of the box so Stu you're living in Australia you've moved out here with your wife you're in Marrickville how does this radical idea, FBI radio, come to you? <laughs> well, um, it, it actually came through. Uh, a friend of my wife's um, was working at the station, uh, Megan Loader, um, who was also kind of one of the kind of, she was founding mothers of FBI. Um, and uh, we found out that they were looking for someone to come and join the station uh, in, a, in a paid job. And uh, so back then as a, as a communications manager. Um, so I was lucky enough that I did my interview and got the job. And it was maybe in the job for a couple of weeks. Um, and I kind of think I overheard in the corner of the room, Megan said, oh, we've got this show, we've got this slot. We really want to do something around, you know, kind of international music, kind of non-Western music. We don't really have anyone to do it. I just thought, I could do that. So I just said, hey, Megan, I'll have a go. I'll do that. Now, I'd done some very, very little bits and pieces of radio before, but never had a regular show before. And Megan, to her credit, went, all right, give it a go. Um, And so, you know, that's really how I got my first go at FBI and broadcast my first show in that first week. But to be honest, that was a story of probably maybe 80% of the people who were broadcasting on FBI right back then. They hadn't had the experience of running a program. You know, there were a few who had been on uh, other stations, um, but uh, the majority hadn't. So we were all really green and all really doing it for the first time and kind of figuring it out as we went. What was the composition of the group? Were they mainly musicians, creatives? Was it was it a mix? Um, yeah, I mean, there was there was certainly some of that, um, but I think it's you know it's it's people who um, you know, yeah. It's hard to kind of say because um, it probably you'd have some people, who, as I say, who had, who had some expertise who'd maybe come from, you know, maybe doing some filling shows on the ABC and stuff like that. Um, people who were promoting gigs and promoting clubs and so on. Um, so it was more, I guess, on that on that side. Um, we did, however, of course, start. Um, the Sunset Strand at that time as well. So, you know, Sunset's been going for 16 years and that was obviously very much bringing in people who were DJing or who had their own club nights, which is, again, still very similar to what it is today. So your um, first show is My Fat Planet. What did it actually sound like? What did it sound like to the listener? Well, the pitch to Fat Planet was, imagine what FBI would sound like if it was somewhere else in the world, okay? So if FBI was actually running in Tokyo or if it was running in Brazil uh, or Sao Paulo, um, you know, or somewhere in South Africa or somewhere in Mumbai or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What would it play? What, what would be the music that it would play? Um, so therefore, the kind of sound of the show was then quite like FBI, but it was playing music um, that uh, had sometimes never been heard. On, certainly not on FBI and often not on Australian radio because we were just finding stuff, really obscure stuff uh, from all over the world and, um, you know, and presenting it that way. I want to ask a bit about the kind of the, the structure and reputation of FBI in its early years. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for it to um, get off the ground? Um, there's kind of probably two answers to that. I mean, the, there's the kind of, you know, financial answer, which is, you know, it, it took a good few years to really stabilize and get up. Um, but I think it pretty much hit the ground running in terms of, um, you know, people's need for something like FBI. It had done uh, what we call some test broadcasts. What I mean by that, it, it, it would every year do like a month of broadcasting. Um, and those licenses 
essentially any any group could apply for. So I think we did a month broadcasting. I wasn't involved at this time. Did a month broadcasting out of a lay-by in Bondi and then another month broadcasting in above some Chinese restaurant in George Street next to the cinema. And, and so a few people knew about it and had been doing that for quite a few years. They'd have benefit gigs and so on. So there was quite a, um, a kind of... FBI was known, but it wasn't like a full-time broadcaster like it is today. And I had to kind of apply for that license and, uh, and you know, and, and eventually won that license and started broadcasting. So it wasn't like it was completely unknown. Um, but it did have a reputation for being quite uh, essentially, I would say, like a rock station, right? So it played a lot of like, you know, Sydney rock bands or kind of indie bands. Um, didn't have a reputation for being a dance station or, or anything like that. To the point I remember on um, the first day when we played the first song, which was kind of like this weird thing. It was called the FBI Supergroup, and they got all these bands to do a song. It was actually a kind of cover of, a, of, of an old rock song. Um, and the first comment on the website within two minutes of FBI launching was, here we go again, it's just another rock station. And then like the second track we played was some DFA remix, and it was like, oh, okay, maybe that comment just came in a few minutes too soon, <laughs> you know? Else, yeah. yeah, and then we're straight into Sunsets that night. So I think it surprised people that we were covering both, you know, both, I guess, the kind of indie community, but also the dance community, and a very, very strong uh, hip-hop community as well. You know, FBI really championed Australian hip-hop around that time. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that was the surprise for everybody, that, that FBI could be, um, you know, could represent a, a multitude of music communities rather than a particular kind of genre or strand. And was the music industry receptive? Were you able to pull international acts, for example, the way that yeah. the station is today? Yeah, they were super receptive almost from get-go, again, because there was a gap, you know. It was, it was difficult to get, um, you know, placement for certain bands, let's say. I mean, what are the other options that, you know, that, that you have? Um, so it was, it, was, it was hard to get placement. And, and, you know, remember the people who are working in, you know, things like local record labels or lo local promoters, they were so into what FBI was doing that if an international band came in, they were like, you got to go with FBI, even though they might not have tens of thousands of listeners necessarily, they're the station you really want to be heard on. You know, because they are the tastemakers, right? Which is, which is kind of what F FBI still is today. So, so I think early on, kind of people realized that it wasn't so much about getting to a reach in terms of a lot of people. It was kind of getting to the right people. And now, of course, sixteen years later, you've got both, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I don't think it was very difficult to convince people. And I remember, I mean, the party that we had here on the first day when we turned it on for the first time was full of folk, mostly from from the music industry, who were just kind of relieved, you know, that FBI was here and finally broadcasting. How did you go chasing talent? Did, did things go wrong in the early stages? Were, was it always a clean process? No. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, because of everything I've just said, you know, some artists would arrive, you know, and they'd arrive at this kind of shop front, uh, you know, in, uh, in Redfair and, and kind of walk in and go, oh, you know, because they're accustomed to maybe being at the ABC or being at some other kind of, you know, institution that, that looked very grand and rich and they kind of walk into the station like, oh, okay. So sometimes people come in and go, oh, you know what, this is awesome. You know, this is great. Um, and they would really kind of go for it and, and, and really kind of uh, embrace it. You know, I think people, particularly people coming from like indie subcultures, you know, even though the name bands would come in and go, great, this is where I'm from. I recognize this place. You know, I, I used to maybe DJ at a station like this or I grew up with stations like this. So they really loved it because it felt like, oh, yeah, this is very kind of authentic to my roots. Whereas other artists who are a bit more kind of not so much commercial, but a bit more established, we kind of come in and not know what to do. You know, so there are plenty of interviews that would go on air that would just be like dead air and difficult, really difficult interviews. Yeah. Tell me about going 
going after Blondie's Debbie Harry in the early <laughs> years. This is a kind of a bit of an apocryphal story now, but um, I do remember. So Jess Keeley, who was the very first voice on FBI back in 2003, we had the opportunity to interview Blondie, Debbie Harry, um, uh, but at a hotel down at Circular Quay. And um, I was, a, you know, I was my dad was really a Blondie when I was a kid. And, I, you know, so I listened to all the Blondie records and I was kind of, you know, excited at the opportunity. I said, hey, Jess, I'll just come with you and pretend to be like your producer, even though I wasn't. So the two of us went together, but Jess had this old clapped out kind of lime, uh, light lime green Volkswagen Beetle that was just a wreck. Um, and, you know, she'd have to try and start it 10 times to get it going. Uh, anyway, we eventually got going and we were maybe about half a kilometer uh, from the hotel in Circular Quay. So we're in the middle of George Street and Jess's Volkswagen just completely claps out and it just stops. And she's pulling the, you know, pulling the clutch about five or six times. It wouldn't go, it wouldn't go. And there's everyone behind us honking their horns. It's like, Jess, just get out, we'll push. So there's the two of us pushing this Volkswagen all the way down George Street. We couldn't park at the hotel, so we're like, just abandon it. So we just literally pushed it onto the curb and abandoned it. And Jess was like, if it gets towed away, whatever, we're going to meet Debbie Harry and we're late. So we panned it in there and got in. And then, like that thing I said at the top, FBI punched above our weight. We just turn up and kind of dust ourselves down and go, hi, we're here to interview Debbie Harry. But it was really, you know, that to me really symbolized FBI to some extent because, like, you, you have that kind of veneer of being, hey, we're FBI and we're, you know, we can do this. Whereas behind the scenes, it's just a little bit chaotic. As long as you got the tape. All right, now we're playing um, The Emergency. Mm. Where does this sit in FBI's genesis? Well, this is a, a song, I guess, that got played a lot on FBI uh, in the early days. It actually appeared in one of FBI's first compilations. Back, We actually released compilation CDs, believe it or not. Um, and uh, one of them called Kill Your Idols that, that this appears on, along with some other great Australian bands. But I chose this one because this was the first band that I ever saw when I arrived in Australia. I saw them in some uh, weird little kind of DIY space in Surrey Hills, uh, supported by Spod, who I still think records today. Um, and another artist called Toe Cutter. And I remember just walking in and thinking, because up until seeing this band, I hadn't managed to find any good music in Sydney. I think it's hard for some people who land pre-FBI to kind of go, where is the music scene? Where is the culture? Where's the good stuff that isn't just, you know, kind of pub rock stuff? And so finding this little venue and finding this band and, you know, was, was a revelation to me. Um, and actually this kind of, it only predated F me finding FBI by a couple of months, but it was really kind of representative, I guess, of what FBI became. Black for 
The Emergency and We Got the Horror. It was a song heard a lot at FBI in its first couple of years. Also heard a lot on FBI Radio was the man who brought it in. My guest on Out of the Box today, Stu Buchanan. Stu was an early GM of FBI and today we're rolling through the early years of the station on this, its 16th birthday. Stu, your your early couple of shows at FBI kind of morph into uh, a record label of the same name. Mm-hmm. The name being for your second show, New Weird Australia. Yes. What were you What were you digging for there? Well, with with the previous show that I'd done, Fat Planet, uh, I started um, I, I started a blog to kind of coincide with the show, um, and. Uh, I guess now when we look back on it, we call them MP3 blogs. I mean, I guess they were kind of known by that at the time. I was probably one of the first, I think, to kind of run an MP3 blog. Um, what does it actually look like? What does an MP3 yeah, yeah, blog look like to the user? Very good question. So it looks like your kind of standard, regular, kind of old school WordPress blog. But what people would do would be to share MP3 files. So and essentially what you would have is kind of like either a, a review or a short feature, just a, a little bit of critique or criticism um, about a particular piece of music. But then you would actually have the file that you would then download you know, and listen to. So this is, and the reason that's important is that these are the days pre streaming so you weren't able to stream that music anywhere um often it was music you would never find in the radio so sometimes it was the only way you would find about you know you, you find out about certain bands or certain music was through these blogs and they kind of um they, they kind of exploded overnight because they all found their own niche um and their own kind of little micro subcultures if you like and that was the beauty of it you know if you could if you could hit even 500 people around the world that was still a good number of people who are interested in these particular uh, bands and so artists started to tune into it very quickly and we'd sort of offer blogs kind of exclusives in the same way that now we you know we offer premieres of videos and so on premieres of streams exactly the same concept but the kind of technology is a little bit different behind it because you're literally kind of you know trading mp3 files it seemed logical for me to do that for fat planet because the kind of stuff i, I would go digging very very deep to find this stuff from in the middle of nowhere that you know nobody had really heard of um i'd never heard of because i'd be, I'd be digging when you deeper. say digging very very deep I, I mean it's it's crazy how in in such a short period of time things seem so mm. remarkably foreign mm. what what, what did digging look like in <laughs> yeah. 2004 or 5 because i mean then again it's very different to 2010 and then very again, exactly different against 2015 well imagine you have you have no spotify you have no youtube and you have no itunes right which are three major platforms for finding music or at least hearing of music and being able to search for them pre that they didn't exist um, so when you go digging, you're literally kind of uh, either following artist websites, following news stories, following other MP3 blogs, and literally having to go through many, many, many layers uh, of links to maybe find something. You know, and, and often I'd find stuff on websites that um, that weren't English, obviously, because it was Fat Planet. So I'd, I'd literally be going going onto forums and just seeing random MP3 files on there, thinking I have no idea what these are or, or who they are. There's no Google Translate to tell me what it is. I'd just be downloading it all and and, and and listening to it and just picking out the best stuff. So when I make these discoveries, I really obviously wanted to share them beyond the radio show, which is why I kind of set up the blog to do it. Um, so when I eventually got around to New Weird Australia, I had a few years of doing the MP3 blog and realizing that this was, you know, a good way to turn people on to music and a good way to distribute music. So I kind of set up New Weird Australia based on that same premise. But instead of having like single MP3 files, we sort of um, curated compilations. So uh, instead of just downloading the single file, we would curate a compilation of 10 or 15 tracks. Um, and that would be what would be downloaded and, and, and shared. Uh, 
Um, which now seems bizarre and not at all radical, but actually at the time was extremely radical because, you know, I've just been talking about all these bands from around the world that no one had ever heard of. The same is true in Australia, right? There's still, you know, amazing music being made in bedrooms and studios all over Australia that no one's heard of. And a lot of it is incredible. Um, and so New Weird Australia was, I guess, an attempt to kind of expose that. And the reason that that kind of existed slightly to, not, not to the side of FBI, but kind of in parallel to FBI, was a lot of stuff I was interested in wasn't kind of what I call mainstream FBI music. It was often pretty experimental and pretty out there and, and so on. Um, so we had a show on FBI, but it was like a specialist show. Um, and the label and the kind of digital platform, if you like, was a way to kind of spread that music wider. Speaking of um, local and experimental, this track is from Q. Tell me about this one, Stu. It's probably a little bit, you know, kind of less to the extreme of a lot of the stuff I was listening to, but it's important to me because they were a band who um, I think I programmed twice at two of our early live shows. So New Weird Australia did a lot of live shows in Sydney, Newcastle, and kind of uh, even around Australia as well. Q were a band who programmed twice. They were on the very first compilation as well. Um, and, uh, you know, they went on to be played a great deal on FBI. Sometimes we'd kind of find stuff um, that, uh, that did resonate more broadly with FBI. And so, you know, we'd go into kind of uh, rotation in some form. And, you know, these guys were a band that did that. They were also a band who burned very brightly and very uh, briefly as well. They had one album, uh, Two Girls from Sydney, one album. Um, I think a second album came out just as they split up. Um, but it was just, you know, one of those instances, and I think New Weird Australia is full of them, of seeing great artists who, for whatever reason, you know, just drop a small uh, portfolio of music and then disappear. I've got a bad case of with you, but you've got a bad case of
Local Act Q, and fittingly that we should play a Sydney group at this station is FBI Radio. Today on Out of the Box, we are celebrating its 16th birthday. My guest is Stu Buchanan. He heads up digital content for that building, the Sydney Opera House, and he was here at FBI Radio from the very beginning. Stu, I wonder, particularly when we're talking about um, the exploration of the future of sound, sounds that haven't sounds that haven't um, necessarily fit into any definition of music that Mm. exists yet. Do you have a criteria for what makes a good track? Um, I mean, I'm always, you know, number one, I'm always trying to find something that I've never heard of, you know, something that feels very fresh to my ears. Because I kind of think that, um, and, and this is probably true out of all the projects that I've been involved in, whether it's radio or publishing, if it feels like something I've heard before, or even as a band that's kind of been heard before, there are other people who can promote that, who can share that, who can who can take that on. I don't see any benefit in me, um, you know, uh, bringing artists to the fore that other people are already talking about. I'd rather kind of use whatever time and resources I have to, to bring artists to the fore that people haven't heard of and whose sounds are things that people aren't necessarily accustomed to, you know, that kind of stops and makes us think about, you know, um, that makes us rethink what our music tastes are, um, makes us re- makes us think about um, what music is and the role that it plays in our lives because it's, because the sounds are kind of new and interesting. So my criteria is always very much kind of leaning into that. Um, you know, I'm leaning into artists often who um, are uh, who've got something who, who want to say something as well, not exclusively, but you know that's that's kind of um, what I'm interested in. Artists who've got interesting stories behind them um, and so on. Um, but really, I guess you know, ultimately, I'm just trying to kind of broaden through broadening my own appreciation is to kind of you know turn other people onto that as well if i can consult the oracle one more time we've been (laughs) talking about the future a lot over the course of the last hour um what about the do do you have any thoughts about the future of music itself i mean what what might fbi radio for example sound like the 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 Mm. sorts of tracks that are being played on a um I, i suppose a radio station that's willing to experiment with mm. with the future of sound slightly more than others um, on its 32nd birthday, let's mm. say. Well, I think one of the things that, that's interesting, I guess, reflecting particularly back on Fat Planet and New Year Australia is that a lot of the stuff that was kind of uh, ostensibly in the margins at that point is now no longer, you know, it's now kind of more center stage. So um, that's interesting. I think what's also interesting is that you know, we were talking about um, going digging and, and finding all these kind of uh, what we call in Scotland nooks and crannies, little spaces that music might exist in. Now those are all kind of exposed or they're much easier to find. So I think in in some respects what a station like FBI you know, can do now but also in the future is to say, you know, that to have a br- much, much broader diversity of sound. Like... I guess the reason why a lot of music media maybe wasn't as diverse back in the day is because music was hard to find. Now there's kind of no excuse. You know, anybody can can be found. Um, and so therefore the, the diversity of music should kind of follow that, if you know what I mean. Um, does, does that almost make it harder in a way, though? Because there's so much sound to consume. Yes. 
Um, but that's why it's, FBI it, needs that. That's the importance of FBI. So you know what what we what we have what we don't have now and what we even had five years ago is context, and that's that's one of the big drawbacks of Spotify is that while Spotify can expose artists we've never heard of, it exposes them away with no context. So you hit an artist on a playlist, it might be a sound, you know, you might love that track and you stick it in your own playlist and you come back to it time and time again. You've no idea really who that artist is or what the album came from or what their art is about and what it is that they're trying to say. It's just it's just a piece, you know, it's just a random piece sitting in a playlist, which is why FBI is really important because it gives context. You know, every time you play something, you know, whether the, whether there's, that company's an interview or whether it's just a back announce or a pre-announce, there's always some kind of context. It sits in a, in a bigger picture and you get a better understanding of why that piece of music exists. So I think, you know, that kind of curatorial role that FBI plays is way more important now even than it, than it was back then. And it's really critical to do that. And, you know, the way that, um, the way, the way that streaming services like Spotify are kind of you know replacing radio is just they strip it of all that context um which is why yeah so it's you know it's good to see fbi still firing on you know 110 cylinders now because it's it's actually needed more than ever long live the radio long live fbi um we finished this episode of out of the box where we started with bjork mm. a nice <laughs> circle there what what song are we going to play last and, and why, Stu? Well, you know, I play, I have to choose Bjork because she's my favorite artist, number one. Um, and uh, this song, I think, there's, there's two reasons why I love this. Um, it's one of the greatest shows that I've seen at Sydney Opera House, which is where I'm now fortunate enough to be working. Opera, uh, seeing Bjork on the forecourt um, uh, back in the day, I think 2008 it was. And she finished with this song we're going to hear, which is Declare Independence. But it was just such a, seeing that song played uh, seeing that song played live, it was just such a kind of clarion call, you know. It was kind of like, we're all here and we all kind of, you know, submit to this idea of, of or not submit to, but buy into this idea of, of independence and holding on to independence is really, really important, whether that's in a political or in a, in, in a cultural sense. And of course, it talks very neatly to FBI as well you know the, the 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 one thing I think that you know I know FBI says it time and time again but it's 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 so important to reiterate you know the FBI is not funded by any external source by a commercial source or government source it's fully independent and it can only play the things that it plays because of that independence and it's so important you know that people get behind the FBI so that it can maintain that independence so this song is also maybe a little bit of a kind of anthem as well with that, as every week, thank you so much to my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole DiPaolo. An enormous happy birthday to this beautiful radio machine that is FBI Radio. This show's been out of the box. Stu Buchanan, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, and happy birthday, FBI. Your own currency. 
do that to you. Declare independence. Don't let them do that to you. Make your own flag. Make your own flag. Make your own flag. Make your own flag. Raise your 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 flag. Declare independence. Don't let them do that to you. Declare independence. Don't let them do that to you. podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.